Hello, <laughs> and welcome to Plants and Pets, a podcast where we talk about plant science. I'm Tegan. Hi, I'm Joram. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's, that is factually correct. That was the yeah. last fact of today. <laughs> From here on out, it's bullcrap. Um, I think we have this weird thing where recently, like, we are doing a lot of small talk before we start podcasting, and then we're just like, uh, how was your week, Yaram? Um, I mean, it's awkward. There's nothing really that happened during the week, and like in the small there talk, big, there are big, big things that happened in this week. This was like, yeah, personally, I mean, for me, I mean, uh, yeah, there was the big Biden inauguration, um, and finally, like, where we, we got rid of of the of what is it, like sauron the big orange eye in the west um, yeah sauron sauron um we we got rid of that and threw like spray tan into the fire and now let's hope that the evil empire continues to fall apart that just sounds like one of those like literally spray tan into the fire that's that thing that like you know with the deodorant and the <laughs> lighter when you're a teenager where kids would it's like deliberately idea. burn themselves and like try and I mean when when Frodo yeah. dropped the ring it was like a massive explosion and so it's it's pretty much no. what happens if you have a pressurized can in the fire it just gives an explosion That didn't happen there was no explosion I thought like the entire tower fell over or whatever Wasn't it like he dropped it in and then like lava everywhere and then like the whole Sauron tower just like fell over and with like the flaming eye I remember stuff. like Gollum biting it off his finger and then like dancing accidentally into the the fire. Did yeah. that not happen? Yeah, that. And happened. then maybe things collapsed. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that, maybe things collapsed. Yeah. I, there were some eagles, and everyone was like, "What are the I'm, eagles doing now? Like, what were they doing before? <laughs> were they just like drinking tea while it <laughs> was going down? Like, I mean, the the eagles are like in the movies the worst plot trope, like. Especially then when you watch The Hobbit. Um, now this turns into like a, two people don't know anything about talking, but st <laughs> are still talking about talk, talking. I have... Um, wait, I... No, I, I've i read the books 10 years ago, 15... How old are we now? 20 years ago, maybe, when the movies first came out? Um, I, I read the books like somewhere in my youth and I found them incredibly boring. Like somewhere I think I when I was like before. 14 or 15 or something and the movies weren't out then. I think I said this before on the podcast, like when I was like four or five, my dad thought it was a great idea to read us The Hobbit. And my sister and I started crying and begging him to stop reading it. And I had nightmares about giant spiders. And again, growing up in Australia, spiders are a real freaking threat. Like this is not an appropriate <laughs> book for your children. No, I, I read The Hobbit also was one of the first stories that I read. And I liked that. Like there I was uh, younger than 10 or something. But then later I, I read The Hobbit and I just remember how uh, the, the, the Lord of the Rings, how incredibly bored I was by all of the tales of the history of the of all of the lore and the songs. And I don't know. Um, I found the movies more exciting than the books, but also like in the... Not The Hobbit movies. Just no, The Hobbit movies, they're, they're Definitely garbage. not. <laughs> Incorrect. Um, yeah. So, but that was like a long, bad uh, analogy to real life happening. Um, I'm just, I, I was Yay, just happy Biden. about all of the news for once uh, that came from the United States. Or maybe not all of the news. There was probably some bad stuff in between. But like Biden and uh, the people he appointed and the, the documents he signed immediately um, that he, like they rejoined the Paris Accords and lots of other things that were broken before they immediately picked up the pieces and mended them back together where possible um and yeah and like even nice. though even though i know he like 
most of what he reset environmentally speaking was like resetting to a neutral that was still quite bad i just like like the the trajectory that trump put us on was so chaotic and for me i mean i think i've discussed this with some other friends before like the biggest thing about trump like obviously inciting violence like a terrible person um just just horrible in case you guys haven't picked up on that we're not super pro trump on this this podcast um no but like the the desire to deliberately corrode the public's faith in science to to alter reality that is the thing that scares me the most because that's like completely that's like something where you know if that trust is lost we will never find our way back and the fact that biden has basically said i'm aware of this this is horrible and this is going to be my main aim is to try and like recenter the government but also the country and you know the public's interpretation like put things back onto science like thanks like i'm just like yeah yeah it was a little bit of relief honestly and yeah and and after the capital um riots or like terrorist attack essentially um it was it was i was just glad that there was no major bad news on inauguration day I, i guess like I've never seen pictures where there was more military in Washington DC than in the last couple of days. So I think they they did their best to to stop anything from happening. But yeah, I'm really happy they succeeded. Um so that that was actually good. Although I have to say yeah, like, I I, I I'm consuming the news at a very low rate by now like some of the things i literally learn over from from instagram and then look up sort of what the reference is uh and then see see the context of it because i'm like the last last year broke me in terms of like being interested in a new cycle it really is a lot of effort now yeah i think there's a a healthy distance you can take at some points depending on your your yeah. own mental state and and like, you have to say in, like, we, come out, come like we're both not living in the united states so it's a very indirect effect on us what's happening there i mean it does have an effect and it, and we do care a lot but we are not directly affected by the policies there yeah and i like as from an australian point of view i really think like historically australian has ta- australia has taken a lot of policies which are like waiting to see what the u.s does and then just following it so i think that's from my country that's a pretty direct thing like i mean it's indirect but only one level of difference i'm <laughs> just like watch them wait and then like do exactly the same a couple of months later but um yeah yeah, yeah. good times guys like we know things aren't solved we know the world is not perfect but like it's just like a little bit of a relief right <laughs> like a some yeah um otherwise what have you been doing in your life um, <laughs> i saw something about how you're now um an influencer <laughs> yes this is written in our show notes that yarm is now an influencer i i'm i'm role what did you influence? An influencer like um like a person i follow um a woman she gave away a backpack from her work and she's working like a sustainable fashion outlet i think not a fashion brand but like a fashion outlet for sustainable clothing and um they were giving away a backpack and i just like it was one of these things like comment and follow and you're entering the raffle and i won like i was for once uh like actually winning on on a like i rarely enter in these instagram things because the chances are incredibly small um this time i won and then i like i got my backpack and i was like oh no i'm gonna take like fancy instagram pictures uh, with it and then we went for a walk in the forest with like the whole family and i would bring like the backpack and then like pose for a few pictures like put it on the ground in a, on next to a tree and take some pictures and 
really felt like very smug and happy, but also a little bit disgusted at myself because it's really weird when you start putting products down and start taking product shots of things that like I was giving for free. Like there was no expectation that I do this. Like I did this on my own. Like there, there was like no deal attached to it. I was just doing this for the fun, but I don't know. Like I'm, I'm doing sort of the the work, what like a proper advertisement office would do. And I'm doing that for fun. Like, how how insane is that? <laughs> that you're like, oh, my, my understanding of fun is role-playing as, like, an ad person. Um, so that was weird, but it was fun. Like, I can't deny it. I would like to uh, to have the influencer lifestyle in terms of, like, um, having products and trying them out and taking nice pictures of them and writing about how nice the products are. Although I hate everything about, like, influencer life. <laughs> Yeah, I would like to mention this is the same Yoram who, like, every single time, like, a couple of times a week, I message you and say, hey, Yoram, we need a photo of you and your face or you wearing your head, like, anything for the Instagram feed for plants and pipettes, just so it's not constantly my face. Um, and every single time, Yoram's like, yeah, yeah, sure, later, later. And then I never get anything. And I remind him, like, two or three times, and I just give, like, this is the same Yoram, am I right? <laughs> Just like, <laughs> you're not sending me products if you send me products uh, I will take pictures with myself and the products <laughs> I literally sent you a box of biscuits over Christmas like I could have got you with the biscuits like. but they were not like in a package that was like Instagram ready oh my god <laughs> it's all about looks like they were tasty and delicious and was very happy about them but that's not what Instagram cares about like they can taste like garbage but look amazing that's perfect for the gram so next time right. make like some vanilla, sort of like hair the, product the, or the, the most boring bland dry vanilla cupcake with a ton of frosting on it it looks like a unicorn send Dude, me that you, you live in germany if you want bad cakes just go <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm sorry you don't have uh. to be it's it, it's it's it hurts a bit because it's true like there's like i like Okay, in my defense, guys, I'm sorry because I'm, I'm German bashing here, Germany bashing here, but like Germany makes amazing bread-based goods and also like Christmas cookies and like this kind of like seasonal goods. Amazing. The cakes, not part of their tradition. Um, I mean, technically, they tend to yes. be, technically, we have no. like traditional like like tray bakes, but they're all terrible. Yeah, but again, this is they're like, traditionally this is, terrible. Well, the tray bakes are also, you have something with like a fruit and then a streusel, kind of like a, a buttery crumble thing. Like those are quite good as well. Like the stuff that's more like looking like a cake. It's really like somebody saw a picture of a cake without getting a recipe of a cake and then tried to like physically represent it without actually caring. Like the fact that they're putting like shaving cream with sugar. Like, you know, they're getting the looks, but not the. And then also baking the cake as one would bake bread for like 50 minutes in the oven at like 190 degrees. Like, (laughs) sorry guys, it's not ideal. Like, I'm just. (laughs) <laughs> One of our most famous things is the Gummibärchenkuchen. I don't see anything wrong with that. Where well, it's, it's like a very standard cake mix. Literally, you just mix some gummy bears into it and then you bake it for an hour. That's not actually a thing, right? Like it my is. ex actually, my ex made that and broke my spring form pan because like the the gummy bears, they melted, they set and then they could never be melted again. They just like changed chemical property and became some sort of like silicon based mass that like frankly it's shocking that those things can pass through your digestive system like that they can in any way be broken down by the human gut um this should be studied but my i had to throw out my spring form it wouldn't open and then to open it it just like exploded and the gummy bears stayed where they were like it was yeah. gone forever 
Yeah, it's it's well not done. a good idea to do that. I don't endorse using gummy bears. Like I, I like gummy bears on their own, but putting them in cakes, no, please don't. Um, but tradition, like every, I would say like every German child had at one point a cake that had either like gummy bears as a decoration on top or baked into the cake. Um, uh, myself included, and I think I know no not a single person who didn't have that at one point. In Australia, we have this very famous um, children's cake book that's from, like, a popular woman's magazine, I think. And, like, every single person who grew up in my generation, their parents tried to recreate these. Because, like, we, we always do homemade cakes for birthdays or, like, that was kind of the, the, the thing when I was growing up. So, there's, like, a famous train one and a bear one and, like, a rainbow one. And, like, anybody in my generation knows these these cakes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's talk about plants, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Enough this about time. cake. Um, let, let, let's talk a bit about plant science. It's the paper of the week. And Yoram, you chose today's paper. Tell us what it is and why you chose it. It's called Plant Roots Sense Soil Compaction Through Restricted Ethylene Diffusion um, by uh, Bipin K. Pandi. Uh, from the lab of Malcolm J. Bennett, uh, published in Science just uh, last week in um, of this year. And yeah, I came across it because it was talking about soil com uh, compaction, which I find an interesting topic in itself. Like I have some friends who, who work on sort of like sustainable soil practices. What can we do to protect our soils? Because they are actually... Like first of all, carbon sinks when when they're properly managed, and also um, they are crucial for agriculture. And the way we're usually treating them in agriculture is not really sustainable in the way that they eventually are overused. Like they they need re regeneration. And one of mm. the problems that we have is uh, soil compaction. That's how I found this paper, like um, or how it got my interest, and um, I started reading about this. Um, yeah, so basically what you're talking about as far as us ruining the soil is this idea that, you know, soil has its own properties. It's got a lot of microorganisms living in there. It's almost like an, an entity, you know, an ecosystem on itself. Um, but we do things with modern agriculture that don't necessarily keep that ecosystem healthy. And one of the key things is that we like to use machinery to make it easier for us to harvest our crops. But this is very heavy tractors going over ground, which just like compacts the soil, which is kind of the problem discussed in this paper. So you're pressing down all the soil, you're pushing out all of the air from the soil, all of the water from the soil, and you're just making it really hard for anything to penetrate. Um, this has secondary effects, which mean that, you know, there can be more runoff and erosion because instead of things nicely sinking into the air pockets of the soil, they're just like getting pushed off by this massively hard surface that's been like compacted flat. Um, but of course, also it can be bad for plants because the soil is so hard they can't make their way in there. Yeah, uh, I mean the the fact like the problem gets worse with with time. Not only because tractors run over it more often, but also we tend to use bigger machinery, um, like so that we have like a massive tractor that a single person can operate um, and just do a few passes over a plot instead of like a few dozen. Um, because uh, and that makes the problem worse. And yeah, and the plants they they need what's in the soil, namely the water and the nutrients and the roots. They 
when the soil is too compacted, they can't get in there anymore. And so they can't get access to the nutrients, to the water. And also the air pockets are very important then because also the roots need gas exchange. Just like the leaves for photosynthesis, the roots need that for respiration. So if they are um, in, the, in the soil with no air pockets, then also the roots, they sort of suffocate from it. And I just want to mention that Yoram wrote the, the show notes for today and he wrote, without water and nutrients, the plants go tits up, which is a scientific way of saying that roots also need access to gases, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, what happens when the, the roots are growing in compacted soils is usually that um, they are just stopping growth. They're, at one point, they don't grow further. And um, we had no idea for the mechanism behind it. Like we can understand like, okay, compact soil bad, so root no grow. But we did not know what's mechanistically happening. Okay, the next thing we have to talk about as a kind of introduction background is the idea of ethylene, which comes up already in the title. So plant root sense soil compaction through restricted ethylene diffusion. And this ethylene is a plant hormone, and you might have heard me complain about this before, but usually when I have anything about plant hormones jump up on the screen, I force quit and run away because, like, hormone signaling stresses me the hell out. Hormones are everywhere. They do everything in the plant. Um, Yoram, like, listed some things that ethylene is involved in as a hormone in the plant. So hormones are basically just, like, small molecules that zip around from one part of the plant to another to send a signal. Um, and ethylene is involved in elongating of the hypocotyls, kind of like the top of the plant, like the, the stemmy bit when it's small, in leaf senescence, in seed germination, in root hair growth, in fruit ripening. Like that list, it's basically, it's involved in everything. Like it's involved in every life stage and also every physical part of the plant, which is one of the problems with studying hormones because... Yes. Once you get to a hormone, you've got to like a central control hub and this hormone can like lead to any other process and you're like, holy crap, I am now overwhelmed by possibility. Like <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And also what like what I'm always amazed with like studies on using uh on hormones is like when you mess with these things and usually what that's what you do in science, like you you increase the amount of it or you take it away, um, and you want to measure like what happens to the root hairs. But then you see like it affects all of the other processes as well so yeah. you have to be very careful with your controls you have to be doing like lots lots and lots of additional experiments to make sure that like yeah it's not the senescence that has the effect it's actually the root yeah you, you might as well have like replaced the arabidopsis plant with a goldfish at this point because like you've changed <laughs> like by changing this one hormone you've changed every single thing about the the physical being that is this plant like you haven't messed with its genome but everything south of there you've just like anyway I do want to mention that I tried to get excited about hormones for this paper, for Yoram. So I looked up ethylene on Wikipedia. And I mean, probably mostly you know it as kind of the thing in bananas that comes from bananas and helps other fruit ripen. That's what I kind of knew of ethylene mm -hmm. as. But it's also like the the most wildly used chemical. It's like 
No, not the most widely used. <laughs> yes, it's the most widely used organic compound that's made. Um, there's over 150 million tons produced per year. That was in 2016, so probably it's like double that by now. Who knows? But it's it's because it's used to make polyethylene, which is like the most common type of plastic. So hmm. you get some ethylene and you kind of chain it up in a string all together, and you end up with polyethylene, and that's that's plastic. So. It is quite an important thing, not just for plants, but also for humans' ability to ruin the natural world around them. So, <laughs> well done. Yeah, well when done I read ethylene. about uh, ethylene, there were some interesting things because um, we sort of, without knowing, were using it a lot in agriculture for food ripening and storage. Like people were like um, burning kerosene lamps um, and they thought it's like the, the heat from the lamps that helps with the ripening, but it was actually the ethylene that was emitted by these lamps that would help with the ripening. And there were like a number of occasions where they did something else. It was like smoke and and sort of other sort of burn products that people used in, in the storage um, to, to ripen fruit that they harvested. And without knowing it they were using ethylene and by now we like today we're doing that as well like we're flushing storage like warehouses full of fruit with ethylene to con have like a controlled ripening for example of bananas before they they hit the shelves um they usually go through a process where they are like ripened in a warehouse with ethylene can can i give one other fun fact about ethylene i found from wikipedia so in the history section of the ethylene um, Wikipedia page, it says some geologists and scholars believe that the oracle at Delphi like, went into her oracle-like state. So she was, you know, predicting things because of ethylene that was coming out of like cracks in the ground in front of her. That's insane. So like ethylene can do everything in plants. It can make plastic. It can ripen fruits. And also it can make you go into like become an oracle basically, which Yeah, you can talk to the fun. gods. <laughs> Try it out at parties. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not vouching for that. Like that's that's on you, Tegan. If people are getting like ethylene poisoning. People are going to be like no setting fire to plastic is. bags. Yeah, that's not a good idea. Don't burn your plastic bags to get high. There's like cheaper and more organic ways to do that, I guess. <laughs> Right, so now ethylene is like this this amazing miracle compound where um and like, I want <laughs> oh to say God. but nobody knows what it wow. does. Wow, we, we, we have like we have a good understanding in many ways what it does. Also, um, the word miracle just came in. We've just completely like jumped <laughs> er like completely away. We promised at the top of the show that this would be a bullshit <laughs> point. Like anyway, so tell us about the miracle compound ethylene. Yeah, um, the, the the magical compound that nobody understands and has its an energy and consciousness on its own. Um, no, the, oh dear. <laughs> the researchers of this paper that we're talking about today, um, they wondered, like, could ethylene be involved also in the effect that roots stop growing in compacted soil? Like, is there maybe an effect that makes that's linked to ethylene um, that stops the roots from growing? Uh, and so they um, researchers uh, used a reporter system um, in in Arabidopsis, so um, a molecular reporter system that pretty much gives a, a visible readout in this in this case fluorescence when ethylene is present. Um, yeah. And they put that in Arabidopsis, and then they covered the tips of the roots um, with a compound like a, a thin layer that gases can't go through. So ethylene, that's gas uh, gases, can't go through it, and so that would trap. Um, the, the like any gases around the root tips and that was sort of mimicking a very compact soil where you have no air exchange around it there's no more air pockets um, and what they saw was that they um, saw that there was ethylene like accumulating 
when you would cover the root tips. So when there's no more gas exchange around the root tips, you see an increase in ethylene, which hinted... Which makes... But that makes sense, right? Because yeah. the ethylene is being produced in those root tips and normally it's volatile. It's like kind of comes out as a little gas from the root. But if you put this little gas protection blanket over the root, I'm imagining kind of like a wax coating at the end of the root tip. Um, then the yeah. ethylene can't get out. Yeah, I looked in the method and it's like some like spray-on product or where they like sprayed it on the roots, let it dry. And then um, that would, yeah. Yeah, it must have been waxy or some like polymer that's blocking it. And but what I also observed is when they put that on on the root chips, is that the the roots then stopped growing. Um, they they observed the same um, growth uh, arrest that they would see in compact soils, um, which started like to to look like ethylene might have something to do with this because they also control for things like oxygen oxygen was not limited in the root tips you could also imagine they're just like starved for any gas there's no more gas exchange happening whatsoever and that um triggers a, a cascade of like stress and plants like oh my god like we're flooded we don't have any oxygen left let's stop growing and let's like maybe have other do evasive maneuvers do, do a barrel roll or whatever um uh, but it wasn't the problem. Like it wasn't oxygen. It was just ethylene that they could see there. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like from a methodological point of view, they're doing this by literally like visualizing the roots. Um, but obviously the roots are growing in soil and it's kind of necessary for the roots to be growing like in a soil substance for this experiment to be working to show that there's like this barrier when you have this compacted soil. So they're using x-rays basically, but like 3D x-rays, x-ray computer tomography to track the roots as they grow through soil in a non-destructive manner, which, um, you know, yeah, basically they're generating these these 3D like real-time kind of moving models of root growth, which is insanely cool um, and also very like labor and technologically um, expensive. Like it's it's a lot of work to see these roots um, in the soil. Yeah, um, they're doing that in Nottingham, by the way. And like they have a very advanced um, facility there. Um, I think I've been to a talk once where somebody from Nottingham was talking and they showed pictures from the thing is like an automated facility where they have like growing like sort of cylinders of soil and then a robot would pick it up, transport it to the tomography unit, like do the scan, put it back and then repeat that with like all of the samples. So you could do like a time series over a long time because they they actually um, they're like we're linking to a video and you can see in like the animation how the root is growing because they have like all of the time points in between. Um, to see like how quickly does the root grow in different types of soil, uh, which I find just very cool because it's, yeah, we can't see that. Yeah, I guess we've talked about this a little bit on the blog before. We did a post um, discussing how it is, it's really hard to see root growth, obviously, without like washing the soil off because you can't see through the soil. Um, And something we've talked about on the blog previously is that some um, scientists actually came up with something that acts like soil, has like the physical properties of soil, but is see-through. So it's made of kind of more gelatinous substance and you can um, add some solutions and then you can just completely look through, which is a very cool way of doing it. But, you know, different from this way, but also also (laughs) awesome. Anyway, Yaram, what else did they do? Yeah, so they not only did this in Arabidopsis, but they also uh, worked with rice. And um, there they saw that when they used compacted soil, that the roots would grow shorter, but they would also grow thicker. Um, as a sort of because they they can't grow in length anymore so they started growing in width instead Um, and they could also see that when they would um, provide roots with ethylene gas that they would 
have the same um, effect. So ethylene triggers the same effect as a compacted soil. Um, so that showed them that like ethylene seems to control the way the roots uh, the roots behave. Uh, and then they would also use mutants um, because now that like ethylene is a very pr- uh, um, sort of hot prime candidate to be a controlling substance in the, in in that um, is that they they use mutants that uh, are um, insensitive. Uh, to ethylene so they can't sense it anymore so no matter if you provide them with ethylene or not they don't react to it um, and in this case the roots could grow even in compacted soil so they could push through the very hard like dense soil um, with pretty much no problem um, the the root tips that were changed in in shape in in the wild types so or in the un, in, in the non-mutant um, that was sensitive to to ethylene there the root tips would change shape when they hit the hard soil um, but in when there's no ethylene that that can be sensed the root tips just stayed the same and they just continued pushing through the the hard and compact soil yeah um, so they did like a lot of different experiments. We've kind of like rushed over them a little bit. You can look at the um, paper for full details, but they showed quite convincingly that this is the ethylene signal and that the ethylene is obviously produced inside the plant, inside the root tips, and that by it not being able to diffuse through the soils, that's what kind of was like, oops, there's there's too much compact soil. There's not space to grow. So that kind of was the trigger to stop. So um they also did like a model at some point to look at how the ethylene would diffuse depending on how compact the soil was around um, to show that, yes, indeed, when you have more compact soil, there's less diffusion. Um, but overall, I what I really like about this is just, it's, it's quite simple. Like it, it just makes complete logical sense to me. Like I'm a root, I make ethylene, I'm sending it out there like beep, beep, beep. And if something is inhibiting that from being sent out, there's just like kind of a bank up and I'm immediately aware of this bank up and then I just respond. Like it, it just, it seems really almost obvious. Like, I mean, obviously this is amazing research, but it's just, it's so logical to me. I really like that. It's like, yeah, so simple. And before that, we often thought that it's maybe like a mechanical stress, like that stops the roots from growing. Like they, they go in there and they pretty much, they literally hit a hard rock. They hit a, hit a wall, can't go uh, grow further. And, that stops them. Like there's some pressure on the roots or something me- mechanical, physical that inhibits the root from growing in like a compacted soil. But this research shows that it's not that. It's just ethylene, um, just a signal because when you make them insensitive to ethylene, they can push through the hard soil. And I mean, we, we've seen that with like every time we see a cracked pavement, we see how much force there can be in roots. Um, that, sure, so- but I, I mean... Yeah, I think there is some there's some mechanical potential. Like there is a potential for mechanical. This doesn't rule out mechanical forces also playing a role, right? A role, yeah, right? Yeah. Like specifically but they're not like here, the main driving force. Like the it's first ethylene, and then maybe on top there's also some mechanical stress. But they didn't see from from what I remember, they didn't see a difference between like um, the wild type in uh, in compact uh, non compact soil, so in loose soil, and the ethylene insensitive mutant in compacted soil they would grow the same sort of as the same speed through the soil well, i'm not sure if, was it the same i don't remember but i mean there there is also things you can see where people like grow plants in petri dishes and the roots like hit the edge of the the dish and then turn and in that case i don't know that it would be the ethylene because it's like you know in a thin agar la- layer so that 
like there's obviously still a role for yeah. mechanical forces and bending based on that but this is you know yeah another thing or like at a finer scale maybe i would say yeah don't know <laughs> i mean anyway maybe? like they can't grow through a literal piece of rock like they will grow around <laughs> sure. a rock um but when it comes yeah. to like layers of clay or other like dense but sort of granular materials they can push through them um mm -hmm. uh Yeah, so what does this all mean? Why is that exciting apart from like understanding how, how roots work? Is that like we talked about at the beginning that agriculture makes as a sort of bad side effect compacted soils. And that means that the plants that we're growing on our fields, they have a harder time getting to water and to nutrients. And with this knowledge now, there is a potential, and I mean this is like like always disclaimer, like Uh, basic research there may be some some things that get lost in translation when you put that in crops but rice is already a crop and it, they could show that it works in rice but we could breed um like with selection or with like fancy stuff like crispr for plants that are less ethylene sensitive in the root so they can grow even on compacted soils and push through it and still get to the water and the nutrients in deeper layers even though the soil is compacted um i i do wonder i mean The reason the plant has this built into it is that it has developed to say, no, stop growing because it's becoming too compacted because that's not a good environment for me to go in. So, like, there's not enough air in there. My roots will suffocate. There might not be enough water in there. I won't get enough water. My roots will die. So, I wonder, I mean, this is something that has evolved as a safety measure for the plant to, like, not invest resources to grow roots into unfit ground. So, I can see, like, there is a benefit if the ground is kind of fit i mean also like in in agricultural settings you have additional things like um irrigation so you can provide more water than there would be in those soil types normally but i am i am curious about what the trade-off is like if you're now telling plants to like go and make roots everywhere and you're just like they're mm -hmm. putting out roots that then die because those roots are going into unideal grounds right Yeah, that and what I wanted as well is like what happens with like the other functions of ethylene. Like if the roots suddenly are less sensitive to ethylene, does this mess up something else? Because at the top we said like how important ethylene is, how involved it is in so many different like signaling cascades, how many different processes are, are linked to it. So if we would have something that's now numb to, to ethylene, that might have some other like bad growth effects and i didn't say that here in in, in the paper like w w if these the mutants that they used if they had some other defects or something um that were not important to the study but were important on the field um so we don't know about that um but yeah of course that's not to say i mean the the plant breeding we've done up until now has definitely showed us that we can improve plant as it were for our own benefit so you know just because something has evolutionary involved as as i was saying with the roots doesn't mean it can't be like perfected upon by humans for our own benefit but i yeah it's it's interesting to see how this stuff plays out but yeah in any case a really cool paper um go and check it out and have a look at the the 3d videos um no, the videos are not in 3d but They're showing the 3D structures. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you don't need special glasses to wear them, so that's a plus. Um, as a summary, Yoram, the paper is called? 
The paper is called uh, Plant Root Sense Soil Compaction Through Restricted Ethylene Diffusion by uh, Bipin K. Pandi and uh, from the lab of Malcolm J. Bennett uh, from Nottingham and Birmingham, where I think the two main institutions involved in this research. Cool. Published in Science. <laughs> this is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. I think, Yaram, you've got to go first because I've seen what your first fact is and it's, <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, um, the, my first fact is, and um, I'm taking <laughs> the headline from an article I read around about it that says, first preserved dinosaur butthole is perfect and unique, paleontologist says. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the paper that goes with it that's about it is called a, cloac- a cloacal, cloacal opening in non, uh, a cloacal opening in a non-avian dinosaur. Published in Current Biology. Cloacal. Cloacal. A cloacal <laughs> opening in a non-avian dinosaur. Um. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, yeah, and I... <laughs> I mean, you I mean, must have come across it as well, right? I saw it in the Nature Briefing, I have to admit. Um, I have to say my favorite thing is the quote that you've included there, which is a clo- talking about cloacas. For those of you who don't know, um, a cloaca is the hole that birds have, um, which is also why it's important that this is a non-avian dinosaur, but it's basically the hole that everything comes out of. So um, the poo comes out, but also the eggs come out, and I guess also the sex bits go in to make Yeah, and the urine comes out as well. Well, it's a bird. It doesn't make urine. It, it makes like urine. Yeah, it makes like... But it's also like right? in reptiles, they also have cloaca, and they like... They do the liquid and solidifications uh, through it, plus like sex and birth of or laying of eggs. Um, it's a one-stop shop. Yeah. But or as um, Vinther this <laughs> says here, um, it's like a Swiss Army knife of excretory opening. It does <laughs> everything. Everything, you guys. Everything. And what the paper is about is that they um, found a fossil uh, already a while ago uh, where, that had a very well-preserved cloacal opening. Um, and then they did some 3D reconstruction from it, compared it to like other like living um, animals that have cloaca, like um, reptiles and birds. And from that on, they, they mapped it sort of where in the tree of evolution of buttholes in, in dinosaurs, wow. this dinosaur butthole lies. Um and that was a, quite interesting for them because, yeah, they could show that I think they, they could even see some like glands that were preserved in there. Um, they could see the, the pigmentation. They could see that it's like sort of darkened around uh, the cloaca with like whiter areas around it that sort of would highlight that area that could be interesting for mating. So um, all of these things um, were very exciting for paleontologists, for people like us, which is like happy that it's about buttholes and like <laughs> buttholes um, but i think for paleontologists it's actually quite uh, interesting because it tells a lot about like um lifestyle and mating and stuff like that and another thing that i wanted to point out about this story is um sort of something that happens from time to time in science where like you either like get scooped or there's like some misunderstandings and here um the authors of the paper that was published now um they shared some of their data with another group of researchers that then went on to do their own research on the data and publish it as a preprint um already uh um uh, i think a, a couple of years ago or in 20 
yeah, I think in 2020. Uh, so, which is can be a problem. Like, if you submit a paper and somebody else publishes things that you have in your paper on a preprint, you might get problems in review. But then they say here, look, um, there was like a misunderstanding on all sides, um, and and it happens. And I'm just like, I like that I included that in the story because I remember it a very like important part of research, like the constant discussion and worry about like who do you share data with. Like, do people, like, willfully or um, not willfully, like, take your data away from you um, and to, to your disadvantage? Um, I know that people were very worried about this. Some people got, like the, the, like, the bad end of it. Some other people were lucky with it. Sometimes it was, like, great collaboration. Um, so that's why I like that they included here, that there was, like, a little bit of trouble, but in the end it worked out fine. Yeah, interesting. And and generally, like, like quite often preprints are not, seen to be to undermine the novelty of a paper right so yeah that's part of it as well um i kind of want to lead on from that with a very short thing which is but also kind of on the birdie theme although those were non-avian dinosaurs um there was a publication that's a little bit older it came out in behavioral ecology and sociobiology which is not a journal i had heard of um but it came out um at the start of 2020, I guess, so about a year ago. And it's called Hissing Like a Snake. Bird hisses are similar to snake hisses and prompt similar anxiety behavior in a mammalian model. And basically, it seems like these researchers have caught a bird that, like, pretends to be a snake to scare off mammals. So it's like the blue tit, which is a super common bird across Europe. And it just, like, runs around going... Um, and they recorded this and they, I think they, they played it to see how, if it was like, uh, yeah, they played it to mice to see if it would also provoke comparable levels of anxiety behavior in mice as that of a real snake. And yeah, it makes mice anxious. So like way to go, jer like bird jerks. I mean... <laughs> Your name is already Tit, but you're also mice like anxiety. You're literally trying to give mice anxiety. But this is a nice example of um, Batesian mimicry. So it's when a species that's harmless pretends to be harmful. So you see, you know, butterflies look like another butterfly that's actually poisonous, or uh, like other flies mimicking wasps. Exactly. Yeah, like a small lizard might paint a snake head on its butt or something like that, you know, to, to look scarier. So I, I love the idea. This, this is much more kind of behavioral or like it's a bit different from just having patterns on yourself, right? Like it's it's literally like... <laughs> like you I mean, I, I knew that swans could hiss. Like when, you, when you're meeting a swan, like swans are massive dicks. Like You should never, you should never meet a swan. Swans, yeah, they're, they are yeah, horrible. Yeah, I mean, they, they hiss at you from the get-go. But yeah, so from that, I knew that like birds could hiss. But I would never imagine that like, a blue tit would hiss. Yeah. It must I think be very, very adorable, fun. like having like the tiny bird and then trying to be like, look, I'm actually dangerous. I'm like, listen to me, I'm a snake. <laughs> I mean, it also reminds me of one of like the best German language memes. So in the German language, there's a letter that is called like S said. So it's like a double S sound, basically. And it looks like a B with a tail on it. Um, but the, the meme is just like a German snake going hiss, hiss, but like H-I and then this like B-shaped thing. And it's, <laughs> it's super, super cute. <laughs> it makes no sense. 
but like as a foreigner who tried to learn German and was like, why do you have this weird B letter? Why not just put two S's like the rest of us? Um, I really yeah, enjoy I'm, I'm not explaining that now because there is an explanation <laughs> for it, but um, I'm just going to move on with another fact about another uh, animal that has an unexpected sound. Like we have blue tits that were hissing. Um, now I have crested rats that are purring. Um, crested rats are um, these like rodents that are living in East Africa and um, where they were believed to be solitary animals like you would when when they were studied like they, when they were found in the wild they were usually found alone and so they were thinking that like okay these are like many other species solitary um, and when they wanted to study them because they do something else that's really interesting apart from purring, which is that they um, chew on the bark of poison arrow trees, which is a, like a very poisonous tree growing in East Africa. Um, and first of all, it doesn't kill them, which is amazing because many other wait, mammals wait, sorry, are sorry, harmed. Sorry, I, was, I went for a minute. The rats are eating bark. Yeah, the rats are okay. eating bark. They're chewing mm -hmm. on it. And that makes their spit also like very toxic. And then they groom themselves with it. They're putting like a, a hair product in parts of their fur um, with like the toxic spit from the from the bark. And that is they use that to fight off predators um, because when they then like they have spe um, special hairs that have sort of holes in them that where the spit can stick to very well, and these are very easily detached. So when somebody like snaps at it it gets like these loose hairs that are covered in toxins from the tree in its mouth wow. and that's very unpleasant for the predator and that was what people were studying which i find in itself very cool um and it's we like have no idea how they survive that because the crested rats like other mammals they die from the poison from the poison arrow tree like people literally are coating their arrows that's why the name they're coating the arrows with the tree sap to hunt big game because it kills it much more effectively um, but these little rats they survive it and we don't know why um, but then when they were catching them in the wild they were setting up a trap catching one um, and they thought, okay, this is a solitary animal. Probably we're not going to catch another one in this spot, but they left the trap there anyway. And they caught another one pretty soon after. And then they put the two one uh, rats in the cages close to one another, and they started to be very interested in one another. And when they put them in the same cage, it was like a male and a female, they started to groom each other and be very cuddly and purr and starting to purr. And they realized that they're actually very sociable. Um, and from that, they did like additional research and actually found them very often like on trails then going together. Um, so why we didn't see that before, it's unclear, but they are sort of like going around in pairs or when they have youngs, they go in like little families and they're like very like social with each other they purr and they're like covered in their own toxic spit from this tree so like a weird like the weirdest little um rat so bizarre. East Africa. yeah so click on the link um that that we're putting in the show notes because there's a video of them and they look really cute they're like black and white um they're like the size of a possum or something um and yeah they're oh just it's super cute yeah it's an incredibly cute little rat. I mean, crested rat doesn't sound very nice, but when you look at them, they're really, really cute. But then if you imagine, like, you're working with them and they're covered in hairs and they're covered in, like, toxic tree sap. So I imagine it's not the also, nicest like, animal to work with. It legitimately looks like the sort of fur that somebody would think, I'm going to make me a coat out of that. And I can just imagine the first sucker who tried to make a coat out of the crested rat and just immediately, like, became covered in these, like, fiberglass-like toxic furs and like completely you know changed their life never killed animals again became a <laughs> vegan like etc yeah. etc that, that would be nice yeah 
Yeah. I think you have another story about animals. Do you want to do that before we move like slowly <laughs> away from animals and back towards planty stuff? I mean, this was a poison arrow tree was part of the story and it was actually that's like true. where I found it. It was in the plant science section and I, that's why I was like, what about the rats? But it was also about the poison arrow tree and the fact that the toxin doesn't affect the rats for some reason. I do. I do really love these stories about how like there's this co-evolution thing. Um, and we've talked about this again on the blog before. Um, in Australia, we have a certain kind of uh, pea family plant which produces a, a poison which is really, really deadly to introduced mammals like rabbits and foxes, but all of our little marsupials and native mammals are completely okay with that because they've grown, they've like evolved over many, many times, like a long period of time with this poisonous pea. And the poison made from the pea is now actually used to kill the rabbits because they can't deal with it. But anyway, similar thing with this rat where it's like everybody else should die, but he's just kind of like got over it in evolutionary time just and like, even taking advantage of it which i find crazy yeah. <laughs> using it as a hair product like something everybody else is like oh my god like let's stay away from the tree and he's just like i'm gonna put that in my hair <laughs> um so yeah i just have a short thing um that's very sort of relaxing to look at it's a it's a twitter thread um about animals that are disturbing wildlife photographers and it's just what you imagine like somebody set up a big camera trying to photograph foxes from afar and the fox is like literally on their camera um and lots of other animals uh it's a very relaxing photo thread um if you need a break um to to enjoy some like cute animals and wildlife photographers yeah, also relaxing and also not a plant is um, gribbles. Have you seen what gribbles are? No. It sounds like something uh, from Star Trek. It actually, I think there's like a gribble, like a character gribble in one of the Disney Star Wars universes, maybe. But um, just Google gribble and then click on images. I'm not sure. Like to me, these things look insanely cute. So it's like a small kind of crustacean-y thing. Um, but it has giant eyes and it looks super like anime cute to me. But Yoram has a general phobia of bugs, so I'm not sure how like where this will fall on your cute scale. G R I B B L E, and then ah, um, yeah, I, I image that with the V, and also my browser is annoying. Oh, Griffin, <laughs> I, I I spell it with a V, and it's like for pickaxes. I was like, I mean, these look cool, but I wouldn't say cute. Why is it not doing the thing? I think it's, they've got that kind of big-eyed cuteness to me. So basically, it's a crustacean. So it's related to kind of prawns and shrimps and crabs um, and also like wood lice. Um, and it is a very small, pale little crustacean that is found in the sea. And it's a massive pest because it likes to bore into wood so it can destroy pylons and also destroy ships um, and stuff like that. And I was kind of looking into this because animals are generally not super good at eating wood like it's it's one of the things that we don't digest things like lignin and, and like like thick woody structures very well usually fungi and and there are the specialized organisms like bacteria and fungi that do that and animals not so great at it um and i saw that there was a paper that came out in pnas a few years back now in 2010 where they were trying to work out how these little gribbles managed to do it um, and they were quite surprised to find that unlike many animals that digest wood, these guys did not have symbiotic microbes. They weren't just, you know, a lot of things eating wood, they put something inside their gut and that's actually what's breaking down the wood. Like the animal can't do it. But these don't have those symbiotic relationships and instead 
it seemed like the Gribbles themselves have some genes that might um, allow them to break down cellulose themselves and like lignocellulose, this like woody tissue themselves. So they're pretty cool, I would say. And also quite cute, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, they look they're microscopic or not like not exactly microscopic, but like quite small, right? Um, they're small. They're like tiny little shrimps. Yeah. But I think they have that, that like big, cute, like baby eye thing that like humans should find cute. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they they are not without cuteness. I would say even I can uh, acknowledge that. <laughs> um, I just remember one of the first jobs that I applied to when I was looking into what I would do after my sort of master's degree was working in like a biotechnology company that would try to break down wood um, for biomass, like biofuel mm-hmm. production. And I don't know what it's now. It's like ten years ago or something. Um, it was like still a massive problem. Um, that we had like all of this biomass that we could grow like in forests, like trees, but we could not transform them to into anything but firewood and paper. Like we can't make fuel out of them. Like we can't uh, liquefy them in any way. We can't easily make plastics. I mean, by now, like there are some bioplastics, I think, but um, back then there was still like very, a, a very big problem. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, it's just like, it's weird that although like, wood is so ubiquitous there's only very few species um that evolve to deal with it apart from like micro like microorganisms that can break it down yeah i guess yeah it's not a few species it's few like it's not animals it's like yeah a huge diversity of, of fungi and yeah but yeah it's a specialized feature yeah which um actually on that breakdown thing something i i i found out about only the other day which i thought was quite cool um kind of related to both the woody breakdown but also what we're talking about today about soil being sort of this you know ecosystem in itself one of the important things and you mentioned you mentioned that um understanding how soil functions like the health of the soil and stuff is important for understanding the how carbon moves around um, the carbon cycle um and one of the things we always want to understand is how soils are storing and also releasing um, carbon. And this is related to this kind of degradation of plant organic matter and like the, the whole cycle, basically. And I found a really cool thing that it's it's quite old. I'm sure a, a lot of people have would have already heard about it. It's from 2013. But one thing we want to be able to do is go out into the field and quite quickly manage to understand what sort of soils we have and how productive those soils are or how well they're like cycling carbon and stuff like that. So we need a standardized measure that can be easily used by scientists across the whole world. It's cheap, it's accessible and you know, it's kind of a gold standard, you know, something that everybody can have access to, everybody can do. And the method that um, these scientists came up with is called the teabag index. Can you guess what's involved? Teabags? Like, is it how exactly. many teabags you can fill? Like, <laughs> No, it's, it's really simple. You basically get um, two teabags. It's from like a commercial brand. And there's two different types of tea. One is rooibos, so this like red bush tea. And the other is green tea. And you like bury them for a bit. 
and then you work out how they've degraded, so how much mass has been lost from inside those tea bags. Mm-hmm. And you like because there's two of them, you can compare one to the other because these different types of tea basically like degrade at different rates and stuff. And from just having these two tea bags, you get a standardized tea bag index, and then you can kind of that's like a scientific quantitative thing like that you can then compare and amazing like for the cost of a couple of tea bags i want to do that now like this is such so an cool. amazing like like diy science project where you just like wherever you have access to soil which is like your garden in the forest anywhere and tea bags are very easy to get by, get by and do that experiment like i would love yeah. to do that um, I'll put the link in if anybody wants to try it at home. But I have also heard about this um, being used in farming for, you know, years and years, you know, millennia probably. Um, the idea of of bearing fibers like garments or bits of old garment. Obviously, it has to be a natural fiber. So like cotton or linen, not something new and plasticky. But then you can see how long it takes to decompose. And that tells you how productive your soils are as well. Like this is, yeah, but... I don't know. I think this is really cool. It's kind of like a science hack thing that's just super cheap, yeah. accessible, easy. Like all the things we love. Yeah, that's really cool. I have. And also, like, I really hate rooibos tea. So if you want to, like, bury those tea bags instead of drink it, like. Yeah, that's yes. to me also the best Absolutely. use of this tea. <laughs> like, t- the green tea, I would feel a bit sorry for it because I like green tea. But yeah. rooibos tea, like, put it all in the ground. It's fine. Like grow it on a great expense of water and uh, human labor and ship it around the world and then just like bury it again. <laughs> bury it all. Yes. <laughs> Do you have another thing that's a bit more fun? I have, I mean, I don't know if it's fun, but I think it's interesting. To me, it's interesting. Um, I have something about clammy before we move on to the cat fact, which mm-hmm. I think we have the same cat fact, so I'll let you do that one. Um, 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 so Clamidomonas, Yarm. Tell us what you can see with when you see Chlamydomonas. Chlamydomonas is like a single-celled little algae um, that's used in research a lot. I had the pleasure of working with it for a bit. Um, and mostly it's like a little round blob that has a cup-shaped chloroplast in it. It's pretty much like a massive cup-shaped chloroplast that has a little bit of cell around it to make it a full organism. But it's mostly okay, chloroplast. And- you're you're seeing this little round blob what are the other just like you're drawing this round blob what are you also putting on that figure what else is coming coming out of its head the little flagella that it has to move around like the little spinny things that make it move around and the pyranoid it's like a structure that's concentrating carbon dioxide around rubisco so photosynthesis is more effective which is something that's not unique to clammy but special about it that makes it interesting for research Okay, I want to go back to the flagella. So on the top of the, the clammy or the bottom of the clammy, depending on which way you're coming, it has basically, they look like two insect antennas. I think that's the best way to kind of envision them. And as you said, those are important for the Chlamydomonas to move around. He basically beats them like an egg beater and swims through liquid. Chlamydomonas usually lives in kind of liquid or semi-liquid environments. It's like lives in mud, basically, um, but like wet mud, ideally. Um, and apart from moving around, do you know what else it uses the flagella for? Oh, that I have no idea. Like, I know that it has, like, the eye spot to navigate, like, towards the light or away from the light, depending on whether it's too much or not. But I don't know what else it would do with it. I mean, it's not hunting, so it can't, like, like f- attract prey or anything. Um itself? <laughs> I like the way you're, you're imagining like a little whirring fan where it's like, 
Just like increased liquid motion around it that would like distribute heat away. When it feels slightly faint, it just like fans itself. Like, oh my, I I do declare. Uh, No, (laughs) it uses them for like um, adhesion. So kind of grabbing onto stuff. Mm. Um, But like not like picking things up, more just like kind of awkwardly sticking onto things a bit, I think. Um, It doesn't have like... It's not using them like arms. It doesn't have that kind of complexity, but just like sticking. And also, um, when they mate, apparently they kind of like hold themselves into position a bit. Like they wrap their flagella around each other when during the mating, apparently. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So they, I always wonder with these things, like how much of that is sort of like accidentally beneficial and how much of that is sort of evolved towards their trade. Like, like does it like just sometimes get stuck because like the the flagella are kind of sticky and so sometimes it gets stuck to to surfaces or did they evolve to be sticky to surfaces and also did they evolve to like hold each other tight with a flagella or is it just like they're flailing around wildly and when you're just like close to one another they're like wrapping their flagella around each other and that didn't do any harm and so it, it stayed there but it didn't sort of actually actively evolve in that direction i mean it's you can't answer that question, but I always want to. Well, I mean, you, you can answer it in that you can damage the flagella and see if they can still make passionate love, right? Like, you can see. And I, like, my knowledge specifically of chlamydomonas sex is not great, <laughs> but I do, like, my general knowledge of sex overall suggests that it's often helpful to be, like, aligned in the right position while doing the sex. So I can imagine that, like, making sure your bits are lined up is important for the clammy but i again yoram you're the one who has made clammy have sex in the lab no i didn't actually i never i never had them made no like i didn't get that complicated you have to get like different type there's different like mating strains of clammy and then you have to like play some romantic music and deprive them of nitrogen or something like there's a whole yeah i mean they they don't have sexes obviously but they have these mating types yeah that work similar that are like they're basically compatible. they're basically the pandas of the single-celled algae world i would say like it's not <laughs> i mean they're it's not, not like arabidopsis like arabidopsis is like spraying its seed all over itself and all over everything else like you you can't get stop getting arabidopsis babies but chlamydomonas is a bit like moody. no i mean they're not they, they're not still not getting extinct in the in the wild um so they're not like you don't have to have people that are dressing up like clammy to convince them like when they're taking care of Klami to not scare them away so they can still um, propagate. I mean, they, they're they very good at at um, cell division and just like asexual reproduction. So This is the segment where we once again annoy the entire of China by saying that pandas are an evolutionary dead end. Um, We're sorry, but no, not a lot. <laughs> um, no, so anyway... My entire point of this is that there's a paper that's just come out in eLife where they look at the flagella and they find that some of the proteins on the flagella actually have kind of decoration on the protein. So you have you can make a protein, but then you can also basically bedazzle those proteins by sticking different sugars onto them. Um, so it's N-glycosylation, and the glycosylation is just adding the sugars, so bedazzling. Um, and they found out that bedazzling these proteins on the little whisker antenna flagella actually helps their ability to stick to things. Um, And to find this out, they first did what all of us scientists love to do and 
broke the clammy, so they stopped it from being able to bedazzle its little antenna proteins. And then they basically had clammy and, like, they picked it up. Like, this is at a very microscopic scale. So they, like, the clammy is, like, lying on a surface. And basically imagine a cat sleeping on a bed. And then they have this, like, really tiny scale um, atomic force even, like, kind of almost a lever, which is, like, grabbing the top of the clammy and trying to, like, lever it off the bed. So, not the bed, but, like, again, imagine you're picking up your cat and, like, parts of it are just clinging to the bed. And they could see that, like, when you unbedazzle the clammy's flagella, it, like, lifts off the bed quite easily, whereas when it has these sugars on its flagella, so, like, these sticky bits, basically, it stays quite easily stuck to the bed it's much more cat-like so mm, i don't know i thought this was kind of cool because i was i mean i don't know much about protein modification and then, then i was looking into these like bedazzling structures and all the things they do and it's it's quite an interesting field like adding these sugars onto proteins can tell them where they go it can make them more stable or less stable or more soluble um it can like make some sort of signaling happen from the... So it's like a very added level of complexity on mm-hmm. the molecular scale. But then I also like the idea that these people are screwing with the ability for clammy to hold on to each other while they're having sex. And that's just really, really sad. Like, I didn't see imagine that like experiment being in the paper. Oil- <laughs> I mean, I, I want to say, imagine being all oiled up. I mean, that's some some people's fetish. But like, you just like can't get a hold of one another because like you your ability to grip has been taken away and just like slipping. It's just like so frustrating. You just want to hug and it's just like like a piece of soap flinging away. Again, I have to say, I don't think I didn't read the whole paper, all of the results, but I don't think they did the um, can they have sex study but you should go and if you have time go and check out the figure in this paper because there's literally a picture of a clammy with like face down with his flagella like clinging onto this surface and they're like picking it up with these like tiny atomic like force forceps um (laughs) and it it made me really happy sometimes you just need the small joys in life you guys (laughs) that is true I think with that, we move on to the next animal, or do you have another fun fact? No, I think we should do the cat fact now. (laughs) Cat fact. Before, before, I'll let Yoram do the cat fact, but I just want to mention that our friend Heiko also sent us this cat fact via Instagram, like, earlier today. So thank you very much for cluing us onto that. Um, but I, apparently Yoram found it independently. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was in one of the websites that I used. It was pretty featured, uh, featured pretty prominently. So um, I was also expecting you to find it. Uh, so the... Um, there is a study that has been uh, performed where they fi- figured out that the intoxicating chemicals that you find in catnip and silver vine protect felines uh, f- from mosquito bites. So these um, the, the researchers studied what's actually the active compound in catnip um, by presenting a number of domesticated cat and cats that are yet to be domesticated, so feral cats. Um, with different extracts from these uh, from these two plants, from catnip and silver vine, and then found one particular compound. Um, and um, they even did that to some like large cats, and all of them 
went crazy for it, where other mammals didn't care for the compound. Um, and then the cats... By large cats, you mean like not a fat house cat, you mean like a tiger. Yeah. I mean, probably some of the domesticated cats were also fat, but um, they're like a, a, a puma or something, or um, mm-hmm. like a mountain lion or... I mean, it doesn't have to be a puma, it doesn't have to be a tiger, whatever wild large cat you have available, just you try it on that, yeah? Yeah, like if you don't have one at home, storeboard is fine. And you, they um, saw then that the cats were rubbing their faces on the catnip like cats do um, to try to get the, the compound in their fur. Um, and what they then realized is that this, when they presented a compound um, to some mosquitoes, to some specific mosquito species, that this would repel the mosquitoes, uh, which led them to the conclusion that this might help them to repel some insects, namely mosquitoes, from, from the fur. But they also uh, realized that the compound triggers the opioid receptor system in the cats. So it's literally working like a drug in cats. That's why um, I think in the report there was something that like they were visibly ecstatic about um, rubbing the catnip all over their faces. So it's not just a mosquito repellent, it's also a drug. They also get high from it. Yeah, I felt like the... (laughs) The take-home message was kind of very much angled as to, oh, see, these cats are really clever. They're protecting themselves from mosquitoes. But I don't know the cats were... I think, like, the cats were stoned off their face and were not aware. Like, even if them, there had been more mosquitoes biting them, I do not think they would have noticed at that point. They were just, like, out of it. Yeah. Yeah, like, I'm just looking at it now. They, they had a, a leopard, two jaguars, two Eurasian lynx, um, that they captured and presented in the study, and 30 feral cats, um, which are cats that are just not yet at my place, but soon will be. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the cats cats get high off catnip, there's scientific proof, and it also maybe helps with mosquitoes, but I don't think, like, I don't know. It's like realizing that so, like some compounds in weed are good re- mosquito repellents. It's not the reason why people smoke weed. Like, it's an added benefit, but probably not why they go and talk to a shady person in a park because they are like so fed up with the mosquitoes at home. Yep. <laughs> uh, also, if you're interested in um, cat mint, so again, the thing that catnip or cat mint that gets cats high, um, we also wrote an article about this a while back. And there was an article last year in, I think, Science Advances where they were actually looking at how um, catnip evolved its ability to have this this compound, which makes cats high. So we can link you to the article there if you're interested. Yeah. And with that, I think um, that's been our show of animals and pipettes and some plants. Um, and if you want to get in contact with us, you can follow us on any and all of the social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at plantspipettes. On Instagram and Facebook, you can talk to me. It's at Plants and Pipettes. And we also have a website um, that uh, we mentioned already, 
twice, I think, today. Um, plantsandpipettes.com, where we publish two new stories every week from the world of plant science. Um, so check that out if you want to know more about plants. I think there we're actually doing a lot of plant stuff, <laughs> like here on the Yeah, book. this week, um, Yaron wrote something about basically the mechanisms which allow fruits to become softer as they ripen. So it's to do with the way the cell walls of the plants basically interact with each other. Um, and this is really cool because it might give scientists a clue as to how we can ripen or soften fruits on demand. So that's pretty exciting. And I also talked about a paper which is involved using machines and artificial intelligence to sort of see plants. So to look at a photograph, identify which parts of it are a plant, and then to measure certain things about that plant how green it is how brown it is and this is really really important because we want to you know understand how genes work and you know improve our crops but one of the major bottlenecks in understanding genes is actually that physical aspect of looking at the plant and making those those observations of the phenotype of the plant that's linked to the genes so also a cool paper go and check those two out yeah um and you can rate us wherever you can rate podcasts. That would be very nice. Um, and yeah, opening and closing music, Caravana by Philip Gross. Tell your friends about us. And send us your cat facts. <laughs> yes, send us your cat facts. Uh, and I think that's it. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>